Good Wednesday morning, everybody, and thank you for coming back. Today, John is going to speak with us, and today's topic, he's going to start off by sharing something that spoke to him this week as he was rereading a favorite book. Oh, good morning, folks. It's, it's, a, it's a great pleasure for me to do this. Um, quite astonishing to me that I am. Um, God is good. Uh, Leslie Newbegin has been uh, the person I've been reading again this week, Not Foolishness to the Greeks, which I probably read once a year. Uh, it's short and it reminds me of the, the nature of the problem we're facing. Uh, this is uh, one of his other books, Pluralism and the Gospel, which the title would have put a lot of people off. But uh, in it, he uses a quotation from one of his favorite authors and one of mine, a man called Michael Polanyi, who is Hungarian. Uh, Michael Polanyi was a very smart young man. He was good enough when he was an early postgraduate uh, to write to Einstein, and Einstein replied, that's how good he was. Um, he would probably have got a Nobel Prize in chemistry, but he was moved, I think, by God into doing other things primarily. His son, amazingly, did get a Nobel Prize in uh, chemistry. He's at the University of Toronto. Anyway, Polanyi uh, was Hungarian, as far as I know, he was Jewish, but I'm not sure about that. He doesn't say very much about that. Um, but he was in Hungary. And this was around 1917, when the Russian Revolution took place. And he knew that if the Russian Revolution succeeded, it would overwhelm Hungary. It would spread, and Hungary would fall under the influence of Russia. They were too close. And he was worried about what that might mean. He went to a conference in Moscow on science, and uh, he was actually talking to the Soviet minister for science at that conference. I've forgotten his name now. Uh, but he asked him what science policy would look like under the, the new government. And uh, he got the Marxist answer, the proletariat will tell the scientists what to do. Well, Michael Polanyi knew that that could not work. Uh, science is not susceptible to that. You could do that with technology where you have a technique and its applications are apparent. You can tell people to do the ap applications. But the first steps are not like that at all. It doesn't work that way. I got out of bed for 30 years for one protein. I wouldn't get out of bed for the protein that was being discovered, di di uh, studied in the next laboratory. And I don't know why. I was fascinated by the phenomenon, which that protein ultimately uh, is fundamental to, long before we knew how it worked. Uh, but it got me. The moment I was introduced to the idea that every cell in the body has a, an electrical potential across the membrane, and my next question was, how on earth is that done? What's it for? Well, you're spending, depending on how you do the calculation, 40 to 50% of your energy on that protein at the moment because it powers uh, that electrical potential in every cell in the body. And that potential is used to do all sorts of things. So uh, I had no idea what it was all about. But I end up having a, a minor role to play in that story in its application later on. And... Uh, as I say, paid the bills. Uh, 
I had the best job in the world for seven years because of that protein, uh, living in Jamaica and studying malnourished children and what happened to it when they got malnourished. Uh, that's, that's the way it works. Uh, and you work incredible hours and you can be very productive. That's not the way the world works technologically. People are time servers in many cases. And we're losing that passion in the modern world because we're losing the right way to teach. And in particular, we're losing not the techniques of science, but the context that science needs to function well. And we don't even talk about that. Um, and we need to. And Polanyi was worried about that. And this is what he wrote. In order that a society may be properly constituted, there must be competent forces in existence to decide with ultimate power every controversy and every controversial issue between two citizens. But if the citizens are dedicated to certain transcendental uh, obligations and particularly to such general ideas as truth, justice, charity, and these are embodied in the tradition of the community to which allegiance is maintained, a great many issues between citizens, and all to some extent, can be left and are necessarily left for individual consciences to decide. The moment, however, a community ceases to be dedicated through its members to transcendent ideals, it can continue to exist undisrupted only by submission to a single center of unlimited secular power. He wrote that a long, long while ago, but he was prophetic, wasn't he? That's where we are now. Uh, we have reached that latter stage of being forced more and more, and those in charge want to make it complete into submission to people who have no right to claim that. And people like Peter Thiel are saying it's going to destroy our inventiveness, our imagination. Uh, yeah, we're doing lots of technology in the Western world, uh, and you watch what it does when it's applied to war, but new ideas at the level of Faraday inventing the electric motor in a single day in the early 19th century without knowing exactly what he'd done except that he'd seen it he, with his eyes, deeply committed Christian man. Uh, we don't have so much of that kind of work going on. You, you would find it very hard to come up with a name after, say, Einstein and Bohr uh, perhaps you would know Crick and Watson, but very few names, despite the vast amount of science, uh, have come to the top of the heap. So, what's happening? Uh, it's the loss of the transcendent ideals. Now, there are people looking at that. I've mentioned on this podcast before Robert Fogel and the Fourth Great Awakening, Nobel Prize winner from the world's most famous Department of Economics in Chicago, but worried by 2000 that his students were no longer trustworthy in the way they used to be. Same true of Arthur Leff in The Nature of Law. And certainly if you talk to physicians, the same thing is true. Time serving goes on. Uh, the ethos has changed. Uh, because we think less of ourselves. I mean, we become more narcissistic and we, we don't actually think about ourselves as creatures made by God in his image to spend time with him ultimately. Uh, the idea, Scottish education used to teach 
that man's chief aim was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, that's gone. And with it, so has Scottish quality of education. When I was at school, uh, there used to be a challenge for high schools, uh, last year at high school, called Top of the Form. And uh, all across Britain, uh, a competitive program. And the Scots won it, despite their small proportion of the whole, quite frequently, because the education system was superb. And you could trace that back to David Hume saying, look, stop being so obsessed with Gaelic. The world has moved on. You've got to educate in English because without that, you, you live in a little bubble. Uh, a lot of our young people can think about this in terms of how do you go forward? You have to be serious about the way the world works. Um, they were, they changed and they succeeded. Now they're going all navel gazing and inevitably they're losing their way. And in particular, the removal of the Bible from school has taken away those transcendent obligations which everybody accepted as being part of who we are and not replace them with anything as rich. So ethical failure is occurring everywhere. I mean, there were no ethics courses in medicine until well into my post-training period. And the ethics courses we have now are basically about how to avoid getting into trouble with lawyers. They have no philosophical depth. The same is true in the law. Um, one of my grandsons doing law says it's all procedural. There's no philosophy of law taught. There's no philosophy of medicine taught. There's no philosophy of science taught. There's no history taught. If it was, it would help. Polanyi understood that and said, when those things are lost, you start using technological solutions to moral problems, and that will not work. We see that all around. Just think about it. Technological solutions to moral problems. If there is a moral issue on a screen, the technological solution is cancel the person raising the issue. The moral solution would be, okay, let's find the best opponent, put them together, let them talk about it and sort it out. We don't do that anymore. Now, there are examples like the monk debates in Toronto where uh, they're honest about it, uh, despite the fact that the people running it are liberal with a small L, of course, but they know that the small C conservative is likely to win a good number of these uh, interviews. I mean, they did one with Jordan Peterson, and I forget who was on his side with him and who was on the other side, but it, it was about the media and do we trust them, and they did a poll beforehand, and... Most people in Toronto going to that sort of lecture thought they could still trust the media. And it was about, you know, 40 to 60 trusting. By the end of it, they had reversed those statistics. That's a pretty huge swing in a debate. You don't see it very often. The Brits do lectures like that in which they poll beforehand and afterwards. It's being honest about what's going on. So what's at stake here? Uh, for us as Christians, we can't go back to what we used to have. We, we need to remember it, and we, you need to be careful about how you talk about it. As students said to me on more than one occasion, remember, we don't know the world that you grew up in because it's not our world, and that is true. It is un, unbelievable to say people living in the inner cities in 
the Western world that we didn't lock our doors in the British equivalent of Detroit in the working class areas. That when I went to school, we didn't have lockers and there was one episode of theft in my first uh, six years at school. Uh, we just hung our bag on our peg. If we had a bag, I didn't have a bag usually, so I never had anything taught, uh, stolen. And that episode of theft, the whole school was gathered together in the big hall and we sat there until the thief owned up and he had six of the best and it was all over. Uh, no theft in the school. You guys sat in an auditorium until the guy confessed and then what happened to him? He got spanked in public. In front of everybody? Yep, I still know his name. Okay. Oh, I mentioned it. It said something about the importance of this thing and that was the only episode of theft in six years. Can you imagine that in school today? Mind you, we were poor, so we didn't have much to steal. So there are some counter-arguments, but nothing the same issue. Because now uh, there's a significant proportion of the university, particularly the physics MB programs, teaching us how you feel is just as important, in fact, more important than how you think. No, that's rubbish. There's no progress on that basis. The nature of the narrative that we live in that Polanyi points to the story that everyone believes is critical. I didn't really think about that for a long while. Um, going to Africa is what really did it for me, and I was in my late 40s by the time I went to Africa. Um, bullied into going because missionaries said they had a malnutrition problem, they needed help. I'd been watching and seen that although we had solved the problem, it wasn't penetrating. It was just so to speak, on the shelf, not changing the world. And I wasn't arrogant enough to think that I would be able to fix it. Uh, I knew that it wasn't working, and it, it's only just beginning to work. And we solved the problem uh, by uh, 79, 1980, we'd solved the problem. And it's taken till now to begin to see malnutrition rates dropping. Um, so I was bullied into going, and I, my children worked for me, resuscitating malnourished children. So all my kids had children die in their arms and they were teenagers, uh, but they saved many more, it didn't do them any harm. In fact, it made them great people. Um, they recognize it and say, why can't we do it for our children? How did you manage it? Actually, I don't know how we managed it, except that on one occasion setting off to go to Africa, I had to sell my car so that we didn't go into debt while I was away. Um, but that didn't matter. Those are trivial things. Um, the good that's come out had been huge. So uh, they could make it work in Africa in a mud hut, but public policy, nutrition lectures, they didn't make any difference. I came back a year later having set up a program to monitor uh, children in th those villages around the hospital, and I could measure the decline within a year. So that was upsetting to me. And uh, I talked to my supervisor who had a degree in nutrition from a, an African university, but he didn't have my mindset. And I surveyed most of the villages. There were one outlying village I hadn't touched. I'd given him some money to go and do a survey. He'd done lots of surveys with me. And so I asked for the data. Uh, he gave it to me and I went, put it in my computer and then went back to him and said, you didn't collect this data, it's fabricated. He was about to lie. I said, don't lie to me. I know that you made this data up. 
He said, how do you know? I said, I'll tell you at the end of the summer if you've changed your attitude to data. I understand that you don't care about data in the way that I do. He said, it's about right. I said, precisely, that's your problem. It, it's not about right. It's about whether it's real. You can easily build, make a, a set of data that could have happened, but it doesn't tell me what's actually happening in that village. Go and do it properly. And he did. And at the end of the summer, we'd made some progress. But one other thing happened. One of the nurses that I had trained to go around the villages and monitor the, the growth of the children so that they could be picked up when they started falling off and it's easy to fix them just with a little supplementation, um, had had his own child die of malnutrition. That was absolutely unacceptable. And I went and asked him what on earth happened, and he told me he was going to lie. He didn't look me in the face. He looked at the ground, and he gave me the answer he knew I wanted, that they hadn't fed him properly. But I knew that he didn't actually believe that was why his child had died, but I didn't know why he did. And I sent uh, my supervisor, Karuma, and I said, I want to know the real story. Oh, he came back in a few minutes. He said he believed that an evil spirit had taken away the child's appetite. So he had rationally done what an animist would do, go to the, uh, the witch doctor who took his money, uh, which should have been spent on food supplements, and the child died. But I was the idiot from his point of view. The reason I succeeded was not because of my applied science, but because my spirit was stronger. The category of spirit matters to them. It doesn't matter to us. That's why when you put a vehicle into the hands of a pagan, they don't have the concept of maintenance. Sometimes I don't, but that's for laziness on my part. I understand that they don't. It, a vehicle doesn't stop because you didn't put oil in it. it. It stops because an evil spirit made it stop. And that way of understanding the world makes more sense of living in the poorest parts of the world than does the Judeo-Christian story. If you know that half your children are going to die before maturity, that your crops are going to fail at random from year to year, and you have some of the worst governments in the world, what evidence is there for a God of love in that story? Not very much, especially when you've had 20 years of civil war to follow it. And yet the church is growing there, but not in depth. So I was in considerable trouble what to do uh, because obviously my project as I had predicted was not going to work so I was sitting around not doing enough work to satisfy my activist wife but I had made an impact on the pediatric ward the year before and it was back to square one in a year uh, there's no point in doing that I was there to apply my mind to the problems and the guy running the hospital said look if you can make progress on the malnutrition front that would be worth more than anything else because at that stage at least 60% of children who died before the age of five had malnutrition as at least a contributing factor. So I was sitting around thinking and then uh, so often in my life my wife changed the direction of the whole discussion because she got cross with me and said, why are you sitting around? I said, I'm thinking. She said, you're sitting around doing nothing. And we had a good old-fashioned family row. Uh, in which I said, well, sitting around doing nothing is what thinking looks like. Um, but 
she said, at least you could do a Bible study with the African graduates in the village. Now, you send an intelligent African to the university in Kinshasa, they come back, and they want a white-collar job. They don't want to get their hands dirty anymore, but there are no white-collar jobs in villages, so they're, they're parasites. Uh, these ones had some place, because they were useful in the hospital, in the pharmacy, and the like. But even their pagan ethics appeared at times. So, and she said, you should do Deuteronomy. I think they'll like it, because I had been thinking about Deuteronomy a lot since meeting a man called Bruce Walkey, who's one of the greatest uh, Old Testament theologians that America has produced. And I had some interaction with him and uh, discussion, which had been very helpful. So I, uh, I said, yeah, I'll do that. And uh, the way it worked was astonishing because uh, they liked it. We had to do it in my bad French, Sally's excellent French, and Jonathan was there as well, also spoke French well. So between us, we muddled along rather slowly. Um, but after a couple of weeks, I guess, I don't know, perhaps less even, one of them said, pity we can't go from English to the tribal language. And then uh, one of them said, we can. And I had had a translator sent to me by dream, and he'd walked a thousand kilometers to get to me. And he didn't know why. Didn't even know I was the objective. But he'd been born up in that area and spoke the local language, which is tonal. So somebody coming from outside is liable to not be able to distinguish the difference between the word for cow and the word for grandmother. Um, that can be very embarrassing. But he understood the tribal language. But he'd been educated in Tanzania in English. Uh, Muslim. But like many Muslims in Africa, he'd been having recurrent dreams uh, about Jesus. And he was appalled at many aspects of Islam. So in the end, he gave into his dream, and it only needed one, uh, one meeting with real Christians, and he was converted, baptized, and became a Christian. And then he had another dream, saying, go back to your birthplace. So he packed up his wife, and they walked from one side of Lake Tanganyika to the other, 500 kilometers up and 500 kilometers down, roughly, or getting on that way. And he was just a few kilometers from me. And uh, they went and fetched him, and he became my translator. And he's been giving, he, he, was, he did that for me every year. Uh, he, he knows most of my talks, and he's been teaching them in the camps for, for years now. That gentleman, I'm just curious to paint a scenario, if he were to have come to you and said, hey, John, I've had some dreams. I need to go talk to a Christian. What would you have said to him? This is where we're heading in this year, that the one thing that Jesus tells all of us to do without exception is go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Tell the story and how it worked. Because, I mean, Jesus makes it very clear and the early church understood if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you are willing to say Jesus is Lord you're a Christian we have all sorts of theories about the atonement we have multiple theories which means we don't actually understand when we understand we don't have multiple theories we have the proper way to understand it this is too big for us we will only really understand when we get to heaven so it is what the Lord has done for you it's practical 
And the early people looking at the early church looked around and said, these guys love one another. We try to teach ethics to deal with our problems, and we teach Aristotelian ethics. There's no love in Aristotelian ethics. He doesn't see that as a, uh, a major part of character formation. He doesn't see forgiveness, and he certainly doesn't see care for the poor and the indigent. We teach pagan polytheistic Greek ethics as though they're more important than what Jesus had to say. But, of course, Jesus doesn't do it in the same way. He begins his ethics by saying, with my help, if you ask, you can begin to see the truth about your own soul and you can begin to learn how to deal with it. The first step being to see how bad it is. The first, When Jesus started his preaching, the first thing he said, happiness, blessedness, the first step is poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit is simply looking at who you are, left to your own devices your unrepentant self. It's not good news, is it? That doesn't appear in any other ethical system as a starting point. The Jewish, they were told, is the ten divine intolerances, the things you shall not do. And they had a way to deal with uh, their uh, sins, which was symbolic, uh, the Day of Atonement, because what they did know is that there were things wrong with them and that God was not like that and he didn't want it that way, so there need to be a settling of accounts. So uh, we've talked in the, these podcasts about the long, slow process, thousands of years for every step, or hundreds at least, to get to where we are now. And we're going downhill at the moment. We're losing the story that made sense of our world. And if that happens, our culture will die. So that's the way I would talk about it. We are, I think, primarily required uh, to be able to tell our own story, hopefully in a winsome and truthful fashion. And the rest is what God does. I mean, we all, people who've had a real conversion know that. You have years, you grow up in the church, you, you know the story, and then it starts to become more important to you. Sometimes that happens very early and very straightforwardly, as with my oldest daughter, you know, she gave her heart to Jesus age five, and it turns out it was true, and she still has some of those naive five-year-old traits, but who's going to complain about that? But our world now grows up with no knowledge at all and has got to the stage where it thinks that sex on a first date will be fun. It's lost a narrative that can make a society that works. We have no set of transcendent obligations, which Polanyi recognised. Uh, were necessary and made the Western world possible. I mean, one of my favorite historians, name currently gone for the moment, opens a book uh, on early 20th century, before pre-World pre War One, and says something like this, for the average Englishman, his only contact with the government was the village postmistress. He could travel anywhere he wanted without a, without a passport. Uh, taxation was sort of indirect in most cases. Um, that's the world that existed. And it functioned in the way that it did, which was very limiting for the poor. I mean, until relatively recently, most people never went more than 50 miles from their birthplace, if that. Uh, we had a lot less, but the framework was still there. 
So you didn't need much government under those circumstances. And the, the history of how that came about is well worth telling. So uh, nowadays, it's quite different. And we are unethical. I mean, look at Canada. And the, the, the current government has had at least four or people who should have resigned for ethical misbehavior, including the prime minister. The only two people who have uh, resigned were two of his best ministers because they resigned in protest over what was going on. And they were cancelled, so to speak. We've just had one minister who was shamelessly giving money to her longtime friends for writing a report that could have been garnered from any first-year textbook on the area. Uh, and she said, oh, I made a mistake. Sorry. And when she said sorry, it was almost with a smirk. That's the world we're in. Now, as if you bring technological solutions to that, uh, this is just going to mean more accounting, more invigilation, more intrusion into our lives. Freedom for the Christian is not the freedom to do what you wish. It's the freedom to do what you ought. As Paul puts it, consider yourself dead to sin and start building a Christian mind. There's nothing in the New Testament that makes you feel your way into faith. Well, you feel there's emotion at the start. In most cases, not everyone. Lewis, his first step was purely intellectual. He became convinced that the best explanation of the world was that it was created. And he said, I got down on my knees for the first time in my life since I was a child to make a thorough examination of myself. And I discovered that uh, I was a zoo of hatred, a bedlam of fondle lust. My name was Legion. He discovered sin. He said, Describing it later, he said, I was picked up and carried, kicking and struggling, into the kingdom, perhaps the most unhappy man in England that night. Not the usual conversion, but we know the rest of the story. Truth started off. And just to close off this, because this has gone on too long, fundamentally, you can divide the world into two groups with a single question. Is the primary virtue in your life truth-telling, or is the primary version loyalty to your group? Well, we're into identity politics everywhere here. We have lost truth and replaced it with pseudo-identity. I mean, it's not the color of your skin that makes a difference. As Martin Luther King said, I wish to be uh, addressed and evaluated on the nature of my character, not the color of my skin. It's culture that makes the difference as to how we live. And cultures happen to feed themselves into some rather crude causation correlation errors, which we do all the while. Uh, I took this and I got better. Well, the disease was gonna get better the time that you took it and you immediately make a link. Oh, I banged my leg and then I got cancer. Uh, yeah, sure you did. You did all sorts of things when you found you got cancer. You've gotta show that there's a causal relationship not merely a correlation and most of these things are crude correlations and for instance you take all the black population in north america and turn them into a country it will be the richest black country in the world there are plenty of black people's tom soul never ceases to point out who are doing very well it's the ones who've been locked into ghettos by 
public policy that rewards young women for having children without weddings. Most people are not aware that in the early part of the 20th century, the illegitimacy rate amongst was not correlated with education in either America or Britain. Gertrude Himmelfarber, uh, a professor of English with a particular interest in Victorian Christianity, was uh, astonished when she realized that that was the case. People did their duty in Judeo-Christian terms, and that's got lost in the 20th century. I will leave you, listening to me, to think about whether you belong in the pre-20th century in terms of your commitments. Does truth trump loyalty? See, if truth trumps loyalty in a society as a whole, you get your job because of what you know. If loyalty trumps, you get your job because of who you know. Which one's going to be the better society? That's a no-brainer. Have a good week. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you guys have questions for Dr. John, you can ask him at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. And with that being said, if you've enjoyed this, feel free to subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. And we'll see you guys next week. Thanks.